Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you uh, again this morning. I think it was two years ago uh, that I was here last, so it's good to be back with you. My name is James, and I represent Release International in Scotland. Um, I want to start uh, by asking you uh, to think about a couple of words um, as we begin. And the first word is the word home. So what does the word home uh, conjure up in your mind? Um, and I'm not necessarily thinking about the surface level things here, like maybe the things that you need to tidy up when you get back home or the things in your house that need fixing. But what does the deep meaning of that word home uh, bring up into your mind? For me, um, the word home uh, carries with the ideas of things like uh, warmth and comfort and security and rest and peace. It makes me think about the home I grew up in and also uh, the home that I live in just now. And I realise um, that that might not necessarily be everyone's experience of home, uh, but even if you've not had that experience of home, I think there's something in us that recognises that that's the way that home should be. And it's quite an important thing for our stability as people to have that sense of home and belonging. The next word I want you to think about is exile. And not necessarily the, the strict political definition of that word, word um, but more the, the sort of broader meaning of it. So exile means to be sent away. It means being forced to flee. It means being displaced. And so in that sense, exile is kind of like the opposite of home. It's having home taken away from you with all those connotations of warmth and safety and belonging and security. It creates questions about your identity. So exile is a, a deep and hard thing for people to experience. And most of us here, it's probably fair to say, have a real experience of home. But probably most of us don't have a real experience of exile. And yet, as we saw in that short film, there are millions of our Christian brothers and sisters across the world who very much do know what it means eh, to live in exile. And often that's specifically because of their faith in Jesus. I want to tell you the, the story of a lady called Salam. Eh, Salam had been imprisoned in Eritrea eh, because of her faith. And during that time, she'd been badly tortured. Eh, and as a result of that, she was left with permanent eh, physical eh, problems, back problems. Later, she managed to escape from Eritrea and she'd been living in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. But as we uh, heard about in that film uh, last year, a number of those refugee camps were attacked uh, and lots of Christians were displaced for a second time, including Salam. Uh, and they were forced to walk for many days. Some of them were killed, but many others had to walk for several days to try and find a place of safety. Uh, but because of her physical condition, uh, that had been caused by her previous imprisonment and torture. The journey was just too much for Salam, and she collapsed and died on the way. That's just one example of the harsh reality of exile that many Christians have to face. For those of you uh, who may not be uh, uh, familiar with Release International, um, here we go. We are uh, a Christian mission. Uh, and our calling is to love and serve persecuted Christians across the world. 
Uh, we were founded more than 50 years ago now through the influence of this man, Richard Vernbrand. Uh, he was a Romanian pastor who was in prison for 14 years during the communist era in Romania. Uh, some of you might have read his well-known biography, Torture for Christ. And today we continue his legacy, his big challenge to the church in the West after he was released was do not abandon them, don't abandon persecuted Christians. And today we continue that legacy. We work in about 25 different countries across the world, bringing all sorts of uh, pastoral, practical and prayerful support uh, to Christians who face persecution. So we help, for example, um, the families of Christian martyrs, those who have lost loved ones. We help Christian prisoners of faith and their families to survive. Uh, we help Christians who suffer oppression and violence because of their faith, and we help those who have been forced to flee. So that's the international side of our work. We also have an important uh, UK-facing side to our ministry, and that's to raise the voice of persecuted Christians and to call the church in the UK and to fellowship with them, and in doing that, to learn lessons of discipleship with them. So that's a, a really quick um, introduction to Release International. You can find out much more on our website and I'll share some more um, stories and information as we go through this morning. We're going to take a quick look now um, at the opening verses in the letter of 1 Peter, um, which were on the screen earlier in that short film. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but uh, I want to make a few observations about this and how it relates to what we're talking about. So if you want to look that up in your Bibles, it's 1 Peter chapter 1, um, and we'll read a section of it in a minute or two after I introduce the, the background to it. Um, I think the first thing that we need to appreciate when we read the letter of 1 Peter is who it's addressed to. Um, he says he is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion scattered throughout um, the first century Roman world. So this is what verses 1 to 2 say. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, Peter uses that word exiles again in the letter, um, and it's it's kind of like a spiritual metaphor that he's trying to get over to the people who are reading. He's talking about what it's like to be a Christian in the world. That, and there's a certain sense in which we don't quite belong in the world, that we're in the world, but not of it. And Peter uh, talks about that a lot as you read on. But there's also a strong argument when you look into the background of this letter that Peter is using this spiritual metaphor and it's based on a social reality for the people that he's writing to. In other words, he's writing to people who have literally been displaced and literally exiled, probably forced out of Rome in some uh, program of persecution and made to flee and, and settle in different parts of the Roman Empire. And they're living in strange places where they're treated as foreigners, where their faith is opposed and misunderstood. Um, so in, in, in that sense, the recipients of this letter in the first century have quite a lot in common with some of the Christians that we've been thinking about already this morning. And certainly, regardless of that background, the letter of 1 Peter quite clearly addresses the subject of persecution several times and how Christians are to deal with that. And so in the face of this, this um, unjust suffering, I think these early Christians might have been tempted to despair. 
You know, they might have been tempted to give up on this faith in Jesus that had cost them so much. But Peter writes them to encourage them to keep on going. He, he writes to comfort them and to reassure them and also to give them some perspective on the circumstances that they're facing. So let's read on then in verses 3 through to verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father God, your word is a light for us, a light to our path. And Lord, we pray now as we read it, you would help us to understand and that you would help us to respond in the way you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the first thing that uh, Peter does here is to remind his readers that they have been born again. And that uh, image of being born again is a really strong one. If you've been present at the birth of your child, if you were the one who was giving birth to your child, um, or even if you've just seen uh, pictures on the TV and the programs like One Born Every Minute, uh, then you will know that childbirth is a pretty dramatic thing. And uh, this image is used in the New Testament because that is how drastic uh, our redemption needs to be. We don't just need to be rehabilitated. We don't just need to be healed. We actually need to be remade. Um, and Peter reminds his readers of that, that we've been born again. And he says that they've been born again into something. The first thing they've been born again into is a living hope. Now, hope is one of these words um, in the English language that we need to uh, drill down into a little bit to find out what we're actually meaning. Because uh, on the one hand, you can use hope in the sense that it means something like wishful thinking. Uh, so we can say things like, uh, I hope it's going to be a white Christmas, for example. Uh, now, it might be, but I've hoped that probably every year of my life so far, and I've only, uh, it's only been delivered on a few occasions. So you could say that hoping for a, a white Christmas, depending on where you live, is a little bit just like wishful thinking. But then there's another way that you can use the word hope, and that's more in a sort of deep meaning of life kind of way. So we might ask someone, do you have hope or what do you place your hope in or do you have any hope for the future? And in our uh, modern kind of secular environment, uh, there are a couple of ways that people might respond to that kind of question. And the first would be quite negative. They might say, well, there is no hope. We, we live in a materialistic uh, universe that's governed by chance. Hope is just an illusion. 
you might want to, to believe that philosophically, but I think it's pretty hard to put that into practice in your life. It's quite hard to live without any kind of hope. Another response that people might give is maybe a bit more positive, and they say things like, oh, well, we hope in science or in education or economic development or a political party. And they think if we just invest enough in these things, then life is inevitably going to get better. And there is some degree of truth in that. But I think what happens is eventually these things have a tendency to let us down because they can't quite bear the weight of our ultimate hope. During the the civil rights movement in America in the 1960s, there were some people that were arguing this very thing that progress would inevitably come, that it was just a matter of time before increased education and prosperity led to complete social integration. And Martin Luther King disagreed with that. This is what he said. This particular sort of optimism has been discredited by the brutal logic of events. Instead of assured progress in wisdom and decency, man faces the ever-present possibility of swift relapse, not merely to animalism, but into such calculated cruelty as no other animal can practice. Evil is rampant in the universe, and only the superficial optimist who refuses to face the realities of life fails to see this patent fact. And people who experience persecution and oppression get that in the world today. People have been forced to leave their homes because of their faith, understand that. They can't possibly put their hope in politics or economics because these things have let them down big time. So what else is there? Do they have to remain hopeless or is there something they can put their hope in? Well, Peter says that in Jesus, Christians have been born again into a living hope, a solid, practical hope that reaches beyond the hatred and broken promises of the world. And this hope is um, a different uh, hope to the failing hope of the world because it comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's in a, a groundbreaking new category of hope, if you like. Because death is the ultimate problem for all uh, human aspirations of hope. Death is the thing that always gets in the way and prevents us from total progress. But on the cross, Jesus went through the ultimate exile of death and he came out the other side alive. And what he offers us as believers is a share in his resurrection. And that is a solid ground of hope. And that's what persecuted Christians trust in when the world has let them down so badly. A number of years ago, my colleague met an Eritrean man called John in a refugee camp in Ethiopia. And this is his reflection on the the meeting that he had with John. I first met John in Shire, a town in the Tigray region of northern Ethiopia, close to the refugee camp he was living in. John has an infectious sense of humour, a smile that lights up the room, and like most Eritreans, a love of good coffee. As he shared about his family, his childhood experiences, his friends, his imprisonment, and his life in the refugee camp, he drew me into his world, his faith, and his hopes and dreams for the future. 
I've been privileged to meet many Christians who have been in prison for their faith, and I have met John on a number of occasions since. But I remember clearly the profound impact John had on me in that first meeting as I listened to someone who had endured seven and a half years in a filthy prison in one of the harshest, hottest places on earth. Yet all I could see was this man's quiet confidence in God, a profound joy and love for life and for Jesus, someone who radiated Christ. John was full of hope. Hope that was renewed by and dependent upon the promises of God. A hope that endured and was never lost, even in the darkest places and pain-filled experiences of his imprisonment. That's John's hope. And that then leads us on to the, the second thing that Peter says that his exiles have been born again into. And that's an inheritance. And when you think about it, inheritance is a particularly significant thing eh, for exiles. Because the people that Peter was writing to eh, came from a tradition where their future and the security would have been bound up with the family piece of land. A portion of land maybe passed down through the generations. It's where you would live. It's where you would provide for yourself. It's what you would pass on to your children to guarantee the family name into the future. So without an inheritance, you were a nobody and you could end up destitute. And some of these people that he was writing to would have had that inheritance and that security ripped away from them. How would they survive now? What would they pass on to their children? And many Christians today who live in places like the north of Nigeria, who have been forced off their land, will find themselves in the same position. But the inheritance that Christians have been born again into is so much greater than the one that has been ripped away from them. This inheritance is kept secure in heaven. And Peter says three things about it. First, it's imperishable. Uh, that means it can't decay. So it's not like the inheritance that they left behind where they may have grown their food in the harvest and then after a couple of months it was subject to decay and it would rot away. No, Peter says this inheritance is imperishable. It can never rot away. And he says it's undefiled, which means that it can't be corrupted. So again, what they've left behind back home, that inheritance, which was maybe always subject to um, the risk of being compromised by lies or by jealousy or by spite in the way that society worked. Peter says, no, this inheritance is pure and good and true and it can never be corrupted. And the last thing, it's unfading. That means that it won't ever wear away. Again, the inheritance that they left behind back home, the buildings needed to be repaired, the tools broken, needed to be renewed. That's not the case in this new inheritance. It's unfading. It's always brand new. So even although they might have lost everything in this world, it can't be compared with what they have inherited that can never be lost. I'm going to show you another um, testimony of a man called John. Uh, this time he's a Syrian man who was forced to flee to Lebanon a couple of years ago uh, and listen to his testimony about how uh, the inheritance that he's gained is so much better than the one that he lost.
I'm in this lovely church in Lebanon, and I'm with a remarkable man called John, who used to be very wealthy, but because of persecution and war in Syria, he had to flee, but he gained something of infinite value. John, why don't you tell us about it? I lost a million dollar, but I gained Jesus Christ. I lost all my property in the war in Syria. ISIS came to my farm and tried to steal my animals. They shot me three times in the leg. Friends helped me escape. For my first six months in Lebanon, I was depressed. My wife wanted me to go to church, but I thought if Jesus wanted to save me, he would have saved all my property. I was bitter, but my wife is very persistent. If I'd argued with her, I wouldn't have had a place to sleep. So I started coming to church. The pastor told me to read the Bible. As I read it, I realized that although I had lost a million dollars in property, I was gaining Christ. I went on to work for the church and help other refugees. Today, Jesus is everything. I no longer care what I have lost. Now I sleep soundly because I have given him all that I am, and I know he will provide for me every day. John in Syria. So Peter uh, has reminded his readers of these two amazing things, that they've been born again into a living hope and into an imperishable inheritance. But that doesn't change the fact that they are experiencing suffering in the here and now. It's real pain, and uh, we can't minimize that or try and sweep it under the carpet in any way and pretend that it doesn't matter. It has to be acknowledged. It has to be thought through. Um, I met a Pakistani family a number of years ago who were forced to flee to another country. Um, they'd been caught up in a false blasphemy charge and their lives were at risk and they had to leave. Had to leave. And life was desperately hard for them. Um, I remember the mother speaking to us through her tears. She explained how they'd been attacked, um, how the mob had tried to murder her husband. Now she was wondering how on earth she was going to provide for all of her children. She was a, a non-person in a foreign country with no legal status. And she was possibly going to have to return to the nightmare that she came from. So you can't play down that kind of hurt that people experience. And Peter doesn't shy away from facing this issue either. He acknowledges the fact that his readers have been grieved by various trials. But he tells them here that there is a purpose in these trials, that they aren't meaningless. And I think that that can really help us when we try and deal with suffering in our lives. He says that the trials come so that the tested genuineness of their faith may be found to result in praise, glory, and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how does that work? Well, um, Christians here are being persecuted because of their faith, because of their convictions about Jesus and because of the kingdom of God values that they demonstrate in their lives. And that was seen as a, a threat to the society around about them. In, in Roman culture, Caesar was lord and if you uh, worshipped another god, uh, then society around you could never accept that. And Christians would not bow down to Caesar because Jesus was their lord. 
But here's what Peter says. He says, when you face opposition because of that, because of your faith, then one of the things that that does is to prove the reality of your faith. Because if your faith wasn't real, if it wasn't being evidenced, then you wouldn't be facing the opposition. Genuine faith will always stand out in some way against the grain of surrounding culture. And if it doesn't, then we maybe need to ask questions about how genuine that faith actually is. So even although the trials of persecution here hurt, the one thing they do is they allow us to rejoice because they give us assurance that our faith is real. There's outward evidence of it. We haven't compromised. And on the last day at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he will recognize us as his own. He will claim us as his own. So the trials of persecution bring assurance to Christians, but they also make a big statement to the watching world. Because by enduring opposition and still rejoicing, Christians show the world round about us that Jesus is worth suffering for. You can still have joy in suffering because he is worth it. And that calls people to question their own assumptions when they see the hatred of the world. Will they not be uh, drawn towards putting their hope in the love of God that's evidenced in the life of these believers? All of that brings great glory to God. And our partners in, in East Africa work with Somali Christians. Uh, many of them have faced severe opposition when they came to faith in Jesus. Some have been divorced by their spouses. Some have been prevented from seeing their children. Others have been uh, lost their inheritance or been made unemployed because of their faith. But they are being cared for and discipled by the Christian community now. And many of them say that it was the love and kindness of the Christian community that drew them towards faith in the first place. That seeing Christians who were living sacrificially for the sake of the kingdom, that were treating people with respect and love, was so distinctive that it convinced them to take Jesus seriously, even though they knew coming to faith from their own background would cause them massive persecution. So let's come back to those two words that we thought about at the start, home and exile. The two ideas are kind of the opposite of each other. Exiles have had home ripped away from them with all of the connotations of security and identity and so on. And I think it's therefore kind of strange that Peter uh, puts these two ideas together as he writes this letter. Because remember, he writes to elect exiles. To be elect means to be chosen. It means to belong. It means that you have a home. So elect exiles is almost like a, an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. But we've seen, haven't we, how Christians live out that tension on the one hand, they have been forced to flee. They've been exiled because of their faith. But on the other hand, it's that very same faith that gives them such a deep assurance of home. Very quickly, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice the present tense in those verses. The inheritance is still in the future waiting for them, but their relationship with God is very much in the present. They love Jesus now. 
They're filled with inexpressible joy now. Already in the present tense, they are obtaining the salvation of their souls. So in the middle of their exile, they do experience home. They're elect exiles. So what does all of that mean for us then as we reflect on these verses and what we've seen uh, from persecuted Christians today? Well, I think the first thing that it should make us want to do is to help Christians who today are experiencing these kind of trials. They're our Christian brothers and sisters and we have a responsibility uh, to look out for them. So I do want to encourage you, um, if you don't already get our magazine, The Voice magazine, then please do pick up a copy of that on the way out your door. Um, There's a a table there that you can take a copy away. The theme of the current magazine is Christians in Flight, and there are a lot more stories and information in there uh, to help you find out more about this. Uh, And the magazine also comes with a prayer diary um, that has a little prayer point for each day of the month that you can follow through to help you pray in an informed way into these kind of situations. You might think that there's, these situations are just so big and problematic and there's nothing that you can do about them. Well, praying is the one thing that all of us can do. So please do pick up a copy of that. And if you put your details down on one of the cards at the door there, there we're happy to send that magazine to you for free uh, four times a year. You can also um, stay in touch with Release through social media. Um, check out our uh, films on YouTube or our podcast, which... It keeps you up to date on these things if you prefer to access information electronically. And on the website, there's also details about how you can give towards some of these projects. Um, Releaseinternational.org is the place to go to find out all of that information. So we should help. We can and should help and be motivated to do that. But another level, I think this whole thing, as we said at the start, by being in fellowship with persecuted Christians, we learn lessons of discipleship with them. And uh, there's a sense in which this is a real challenge to our own walk with God. Because most of us do have a material home. We do have the security and comfort that comes along with that. And those are good things and we should thank God so much for them. But we also have to understand that they're not ultimate things in our life. And that we should be able to live in such a way that we don't depend on our material comfort and possessions for our ultimate sense of hope and security. If they were ripped away from us, it would hurt. We don't deny that. But it wouldn't cause us to despair because we have a deeper and much more profound sense of home because of our faith in Jesus. And we should also be encouraged by the fact that our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world are proving this day by day that God is always enough. So if you are hurting in any way now, if there's a sense in which you're experiencing things being taken away from you, if there's any kind of exile in your life, then you can be sure that regardless of your circumstances, you do belong. You have a home. You're being shielded by God's power and nothing can take that deep reality of home away from you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the power and the profundity of these verses that we've just read in First Peter. Lord, that even when we experience 
the most difficult circumstances in this life, we can talk about things like joy and hope and belonging because of our faith in you, because of the resurrection in Jesus, which transcends all the broken promises of this world, all of the exile that we might experience in this life. So Lord, help us to have deeper faith in the reality of that. Help us to practice it day by day in our lives, to not rely on our uh, belongings, our possessions, our physical homes for our ultimate sense of security, but to rely on you, Lord, and to live in such a way that reflects that. And also help us to remember our brothers and sisters who have literally had home taken away from them. Help us, Lord, to identify with them, to pray for them, to help them in the ways that we can. In Jesus' name, amen.